0: Greetings and welcome to the first episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at Canada from 1914 to 1918. This isn't just looking at battles or what the politicians were doing. I'll be looking at the small towns and the individual people as well, and how the Great War changed Canada forever. For this first episode, I'm going to be looking at Canada mobilizing towards war. But before I get to that, if you want, you can support the podcast for $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I actually have two other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Both take deep dives into a specific topic on Canadian history, and you can find both on all podcast platforms. As well, if you really like the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would support it by giving it a rating and review. At the beginning of each episode, I will read the five-star reviews that come in, as I do with From John to Justin and with Canadian History X. If you'd like to email me, you can just email craig at canadaehx.com, You can find me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G, B-A-I-R-D, and you can find me on Instagram, bairdo 37 Covering the First World War is no easy task. There are thousands of lives to look at, hundreds of important events, and more. For the first episode of this podcast, I obviously want to start at the beginning. So I'm looking at the very beginning, essentially the first month of the war in Canada, When mobilization began, enthusiasm was high, and everyone believed the war would be over by Christmas. Of course, all of this was essentially kicked off by an event a world away. On June 28, 1914, the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, triggering a series of events that would plunge the war into the worst war it had ever seen to that point. For everyone in Canada, the day was essentially like any other day, And no one could expect what would soon be coming in alberta the major news was still the hillcrest mine disaster that killed 189 miners a week earlier in the crow's nest pass in ontario james whitney was preparing for the election on june 29th where he and his conservatives would cruise to a fourth straight majority government in saskatchewan a four-month-old william ormond mitchell it's just beginning a life that would lead him to become one of canada's greatest writers in nova scotia hank snow was about to enter his second month of life which would take him to huge heights of stardom as one of the greatest musical artists to ever come out of canada and in new brunswick henry emerson the former premier who was in his 14th year of serving in parliament unaware that within 10 days he would be dead from a long illness for most canadians It was a pleasant Sunday as the summer warmth began to descend over the landscape. The next day, people would begin to hear about the assassination. The Ottawa Journal reported, "Austrian heir and wife shot to death on visit to Bosnian capital." The Edmonton Journal would announce that martial law had been declared after the shooting of the archduke in a story mixed with some others on the front page. The Regina Leader reported on the killing and included a cartoon of death approaching the throne of Austria, saying to himself, Every time I come here, I feel unusually guilty. Prior to the start of the war, Canada's military forces were organized into the Canadian militia. Sam Hughes, the Minister of Militia and Defence, had been instructed by Sir Robert Borden, the Prime Minister, to train and recruit an army for overseas service. At the time, Canada only had 3,100 men in the Army, and the Navy was barely a Navy at that. Needless to say, Canada was hopelessly ill-equipped for a war, but war was coming. In regards to the Navy, only four years earlier, in 1910, the Naval Service Act was put forward by Sir Wilfrid Laurier to establish a Canadian Navy. Canada was completely dependent on the British Royal Navy for maritime defence, and the Act was unpopular with many, especially considering that even if Canada had a separate force, it would be under British control during time of war. French-Canadian nationalists and British-Canadian imperialists both opposed the act. The act would eventually contribute to the end of Laurier's 15 years as Prime Minister only one year later. Under Sir Robert Borden, a naval aid bill was introduced in 1913, which would not have Canada build or supply ships, but rather give cash to the British Royal Navy instead. This bill was based on a memorandum that had called for a Canadian contribution of 35 million, or 814 million today, for three warships that would be incorporated into the Royal Navy and then returned to Canada once any threat had subsided. One week later, Laurier would state regarding the Act, England is in no danger, whether imminent or prospective while the bill was passed on may 15 1913 it still had to go through the senate and most of the senators had been appointed by laurier over his 15 years in office borden threatened to reform the senate if the bill did not pass nonetheless the bill did pass and was defeated in the senate on may 29 1913. so why was i going into detail about canada having its own navy well It's important to address the reluctance for Canada to have its navy, because the events of the First World War would change that all very quickly. So how did we descend into war? I'll give you a very Coles Notes version of how the whole world erupted into war. With the killing of the Archduke, Austria-Hungary, with the support of Germany, sent an ultimatum to Serbia's government, whom they believed was behind the killing. Serbia, in return, met each demand in the ultimatum, but Austria-Hungary declared war nonetheless. Russia, who saw itself as the protector of the Slavic nations, mobilized its troops. Germany, in response, demanded promises of peace from Russia and France. When no answer was given, Germany declared war on Russia on August 1st, and on August 3rd, Germany declared war on France. This then caused France to turn to Britain and ask for support. At the time, Britain was not required to do so as there was no formal treaty with the French, just an informal agreement. On August 4th, Germany invaded France, but they moved through Belgium, which was a neutral country. In response to this, Britain sent an ultimatum that demanded Germany withdraw from Belgium. On August 4th at 5pm, with no answer from Germany, Britain declared war. Due to the Dominion status of Canada at the time, when Britain went to war... So did Canada. Whether it wanted to or not, Canada had entered the First World War, and by the end of the war, the country would be changed forever. Almost immediately, the Union Jack was put up on the flagpole at Parliament Hill, and Parliament was convened and the MPs reacted with enthusiasm, more so for the English MPs than the French ones. On August 5th, news that Britain had gone to war, bringing Canada with it, Caused newspapers across the country to quickly spread the news. The Windsor Evening Record proclaimed in large font, quote, Britain protects dominion, forces of the war, lord or repulsed on land and sea. The newspaper stated that the 21st Regiment in the city would possibly be asked to send 100 men to the front. Little did anyone know that number would only continue to climb, and by the end of the war, 248 men from the city will have lost their lives. The Nanaimo Free Press reported news of a suspected British victory over the Germans in Belgium only the day after war was declared. Mixed in with patriotic stories on the front page was another story that showed the darker side of nationalism and patriotism. In Vancouver, the German consulate had been surrounded by a crowd and attacked. The article would state, quote, The big double-headed eagle over the door of the German consulate office and the power building here were torn from their supports this afternoon by an angry crowd of men, which invaded the consulate offices with threats of destruction. Having destroyed the insignia of arms and trampled on it, the crowd left in a peaceable manner after breaking the glass and defacing the signs on the consulate doors. The Saskatoon Daily Star announced in bold letters that the Germans were shelling Nova Scotia, stating that a German cruiser was attacking a wireless station. The Edmonton Journal reported the same story, announcing that the shores of Nova Scotia had been shelled. The article would state, quote, The aim of the Germans is evidently to destroy Canada's wireless connection with Great Britain if they destroy the wireless station. The Germans will doubtless endeavor to shell Canso, the headquarters for cable lines for Canada, and cut the cable severing all communication with the motherland. End quote. In truth, the wireless station was not attacked, as several newspapers would report the next day. Throughout the country, the patriotic spirit was extremely high. Most felt that the war would be a quick affair, and those who enlisted would be home by Christmas. In reality, most did not even realize that it would not be until 1915 that the first Canadian troops, other than the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry, would see combat, or that there would be four years of hell awaiting the Canadians who went overseas to fight. Whether anyone knew it or not, the war was just beginning. The Canadian government quickly responded with the need for not only troops, but ships, munitions, and much more. On August 5th, the day Canada was thrust into the war by the Declaration from Britain, Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden announced that the government had purchased two torpedo boat destroyers from Chile, The ships had been completed in Seattle shipyards by the Chilean government, and the ships would immediately travel to British Columbia to be manned by naval reservists. Colonel Sam Hughes announced the same day that Canada would be mustering a force of 20,000 men from the reserves and militia, and Colonel Hughes also stated that he had already had offers of enlistment from over 100,000 men. A force was quickly mobilized in Canada, but from the beginning it was beset with political patronage, with friends of powerful politicians serving in the higher ranks, resulting in a lack of professional officers and non-commissioned officers with any experience or skill in the tactics of war. Only one day after Canada, or at the least Britain declared war on Germany, Captain Andrew Hamilton Galt organized a new military unit offering $100,000 or $2.2 million today to finance and equip this new battalion to participate in the Canadian war effort. That unit would become the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, which exists to this day. The charter was signed on August 10th, and the Governor-General appointed the creation of the regiment. I won't go into too much detail on this battalion, because I have an entire episode devoted to them coming next week on May 9th. When the battalion left for Ottawa on August 14th, 160 men had enlisted and three parades were held in a single day at 11 a.m., 2 p.m., and 7 p.m. to bid the soldiers goodbye from Edmonton as they prepared to go overseas. On August 15th, Minister Hughes would speak to the Montreal garrison and the new volunteers following a huge parade in their honour. He would say, A war has been declared in Europe involving the British Empire. For many years past, it has been known that the men of the German Empire, not the German people, mark you, nor the Austrian people, but their rulers, have aimed to command both land and sea. End quote. He would go on to state regarding the importance of protecting England quote, For generations, Great Britain has been regarded as the safeguard of the liberties of the free men of the world if british liberty is endangered the liberties of france the united states and every other liberty-loving people are endangered End quote. he would close out stating the importance of volunteers and assuring everyone that no one would be forced to enlist in the service words that would not be true only 3 years later he would say quote i call for volunteers volunteers mark you i have insisted that it shall be a purely volunteer contingent not a man will be accepted or leave Canada on this service, but of his own free will. And if I know it, not a married man shall go without the consent of his wife and family. Quote. In the House of Commons, the response to the war was swift, with nearly every member of Parliament joining in. Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Canada's Prime Minister from 1896 to 1911, now serving in the official opposition, would say, quote, it is our duty to let Great Britain know, and to let the friends and foes of Great Britain know, that there is a Canada, but one mind and one heart, and all Canadians are behind the mother country. End quote. This backed up a statement made by Laurier in 1910 when he was Prime Minister when he said, quote, When Britain is at war, Canada is at war. There is no distinction. End quote. From August 18th to 22nd, an emergency session was held in Parliament to endorse the decisions already made by the Executive as well as to pass the War Measures Act. While the Liberals and Conservatives had been at each other's throats for years, that bitterness disappeared in the face of war. Sir Robert Borden would state, In the awful dawn of the greatest war the world has ever known, in the hour when peril confronts us such as this empire has not faced for a hundred years, Every vain or unnecessary word seems a discord. End quote. MP Sir George E. Foster, who had served in Parliament since 1882, would give the final remarks of the parliamentary session. He would say, quote, We are meeting as a band of Canadians of different races and nationalities and languages, but never in the history of Canada have we met feeling that we were on one sense as it is at this hour of our history. The last four days of this session of Parliament have vindicated Canadians' public life and parliamentary life for all time to come. They have shown that it is possible for us to forget all mean and petty things when our country and its highest liberties are at stake. The time of trial is upon this country and the empire. It will do us good in the end. God and the right will finally triumph. End quote. On August 19th, Charles Doherty, the Minister of Justice, tabled a resolution that would create the War Measures Act. Doherty would state, quote, We are asking the people of Canada to entrust us with a very wide power, End quote. The bill would pass completely with unanimous support in the House on August 22nd, and it was implemented retroactively to August 4th, which gave the legality to the actions of the government since the start of the war. Under the Act, the government had the right to censor and suppress publications, writings, maps, plans, photographs, communications, and the means of communication. It would also allow the government to control the harbours and ports of the country and the movement of vessels, as well as transportation on land, air, and water within the country. The most controversial aspect of the Act was that it gave the government the ability to arrest, detain, and deport anyone deemed to be an enemy of the state. I'll go into greater detail regarding the impact of the war on German immigrants later in the series, including their internment during the war. The country would remain under this act for the next six years, including over a year after the war ended. The government would also increase the war budget for the country from $50 million to $75 million to defray the expenses of military preparations involved in the war effort. On August 22nd, Parliament was prorogued until February 4th, 1915. In Ottawa, the 23rd Field Battery had seen its enlistment of 60 men between August 6th and August 11th, while the 2nd Field Battery had 80 men enlist. By August 12th, so many men from Ottawa had joined various regiments that the sailing regatta was cancelled as most of its members were now no longer with the club and were now enlisted with the growing army. By August 21st, the regiments had their quota filled with two batteries of artillery and an ammunition column, leaving with 400 officers and men, along with 400 horses. The demand for horses would actually increase immensely and a call for horses for the artillery to buy was put out. The Army Service Corps had 120 men, the quota it needed, but was still short of horses, as were other regiments. In Windsor, the Windsor Star proudly proclaimed on August 11th that 197 volunteers were coming from the community for the new Canadian contingent. The newspaper would report, Windsor hold her head high among the cities of Canada, and she has just cause for doing so. Without faltering or tremor, 197 of her young men, innocent of war matters, prove in blood and temper that they are ready to go to the front for the motherland, end quote. The desire to list was so strong that even the power being cut accidentally didn't stop people showing up on the last day of enlistment. Of all that applied, only five were rejected, including one man who attempted to hide the fact that he had a serious limp. The man had stated he only had a sore foot, but an examination showed a permanently disabled foot. The colonel's surgeon would state, Those are fine, husky young fellows. On the average, they are the best set of men I have ever seen in my many years. I felt sorry for the fellows I had to send back. They were anxious to go, and it was a much harder job for me to say no than it was for them to be rejected. Saskatchewan would proudly announce the dispatch of its first contingent on August 24th. The Saskatoon Star Phoenix would report that within 48 hours of the call going out for troops, 723 officers and the men of four Saskatchewan regiments were on their way to Valcartier camp. To see the men off, a huge crowd assembled along the road to watch the troops march past. For those men who went to serve, City Council announced that it would hold positions for City staff who go to the front and for the families in the community who had members serving in the front lines. And the City would also provide funds to assist families who lost their main breadwinner. The idea of supporting troops who went overseas was also endorsed by other communities. Victoria's mayor, Alexander Stewart, would announce that the provision for dependents of those at the front was something he supported, and that a general relief of unemployment for dependents should be put into a common fund, so that it could be handled economically when funds were handed out. What these councils did not know was how many men would enlist, and how long the war would go on for. Companies also got behind the war effort when it came to enlisting. The Bell Telephone Company announced that any employees who were sent to the front will have their positions kept open for them, and those with dependents will have their families receiving half-pay during the soldiers' absence in the field. Gillette would run ads stating that they would send shaving kits to the troops at Valcartier Camp for no extra charge if ordered as a gift by the family. Now you've heard me mention Valcartier Camp, because most of the troops went there. It was a small plot of land located about 20 kilometres outside of Quebec City. To accommodate the number of troops coming in, the Canadian Northern Railway established daily passenger service directly from Toronto, Ottawa, and Quebec. While Canada had started with only 3,100 men in its army when war was declared, within only a few weeks, 32,000 men had gathered at Valcartier. The group would form the first contingent of the Canadian Expeditionary Force, which would sail to Europe the following year. Each day, hundreds of troops were arriving, and by August 24th, 15,000, about half that would eventually be there, had arrived at the camp. As soldiers arrived, they were immediately put to task in training, including shooting at 1,500 targets, the largest shooting range in North America, all under the watch of Commandant Colonel Victor Williams, Colonel Williams was a veteran of the Northwest Mounted Police who had joined the infantry in 1889 and served in the Second Boer War where he reached the rank of lieutenant colonel. He would command the 8th Canadian Infantry Brigade in France as a brigadier general from December 1915 to June 1916 and after being taken prisoner on June 3rd, 1916 he would remain a POW until the end of the war. From 1922 to 1939, he served as the commissioner of the Ontario Police Force and he died on December 12, 1949. Mount Williams in the Canadian Rockies is named for him. With 30,000 men in it, Falcartier would be the largest military force Canada had ever assembled to that point. The camp would, for a short time at the start of the war, technically be the 11th largest city in Canada. By that point it had reached its largest size the camp had one officer for every 25 men. Each time that a train would leave a community on its way to the camp, it was bid goodbye by throngs of well-wishers. In Calgary on August 27th, a crowd of 10,000 gathered at the train station to wave at the departing soldiers. This was a similar display that was seen only a week earlier when the first detachment of men left. Both times, the crowd let out huge cheers for the men, and would soon find themselves at the front lines of France. The atmosphere at the camp was jubilant throughout August. On one night, two huge bonfires were lit, and thousands of troops gathered around singing songs and hymns, while other men played instruments such as the bagpipes. Colonel Sam Steele would visit the camp and visit the Lord Strathcona Horse, of which he had long commanded. Steele would eventually serve somewhat in the First World War, and earn himself a knighthood in the process. In order to capture the atmosphere and the historic nature of the camp, film crews began to arrive. The Ottawa Citizen would report on August 31st, The first were seen taking views of the regular cavalry at drill. The camp even had a bank when the Union Bank was established near to the headquarters after a building was pulled into place by three teams of horses. But it wasn't perfect, and capitalism would rear its ugly head. At the canteens in camp, there were cases of overcharging, with one popular brand of cigarettes being sold for 25% above the usual price. Bananas were being sold for 40 cents per dozen or nearly $10 today. Many people questioned these high costs since Quebec City was only a few kilometers away by train. A board of inquiry would be established to investigate the charges and the practice of extortion. Canadian support of the camp was incredibly high. On August 29th, a carload of fruit and vegetables arrived at the camp as a donation from the Beamsville Fruit Growers Association. In all, 12 large motor trucks arrived loaded with fruit for the troops to enjoy. Even individual Canadians did what they could. One box arrived containing a dozen eggs with a note stating, quote, Handle with care for soldiers of Alcartier, a widow's mite. End quote. One of the first casualties of the war would actually occur at the camp. A private Aitchis of the Calgary Regiment would be found dead at the camp after he committed suicide. According to the news report, he was found in the field hospital with his throat cut, having done so with his own razor. His comrades stated that on the way to Valcartier, he was dejected, and by the time he reached the camp, he was taken to the hospital where he would later be found. Another man can claim to be the first killed in the war for Canada as well. Private Gordon Betts was stationed with the 5th Royal Highlanders, while standing on sentry duty in France, he was shot suddenly through the eye and killed instantly. Betts was only 16 years old and resided in Montreal before serving as a sentry. There were rumours that Betts was a spy and that the killing may have been accidental, but it was all hearsay. At the time, Newfoundland had its own separate dominion, and an offer was put forward by Canada to incorporate the Newfoundland troops into the Canadian Expeditionary Force. But this was rejected by Newfoundland's government. The response to the war effort pleased Sir Edward Morris, the Prime Minister of Newfoundland, who was influenced by Governor Sir Walter Davidson, who had wanted the island to play an active role in the war rather than a symbolic one. Instead of calling the legislature together to pass a vote on proceeding in the war, Morris decided that the colony would equip a regiment for service. The task of accomplishing this was handed to the Newfoundland Patriotic Association, an organization formed on August 17, 1914. Governor Davidson would be the head of this organization. And the decision actually set Newfoundland apart from Canada and other nations in the British Empire. While those other nations had the war efforts administered through a government department, Newfoundland's war effort was managed by volunteers and funded by leading politicians. A major reason for this was that the Newfoundland government had no experience running a military, Nor did it have any armed forces or military department. No British soldier had been on the island since 1870, and no local militia had been organized afterwards. All the island had were four church sponsored cadet corps, a branch of the Legion of Frontiersmen, and the Rifle Club of St. John's. The government of Morris was also quite shaky, and the financial resources of the island were also limited. In the 1913 election, Morris had only won 41% of the vote, and to be able to raise a military force, he needed the support of both the Liberal and Union opposition parties and the Anglican, Methodist, and Roman Catholic churches. With the creation of the Newfoundland Patriotic Association, well, a lot of people did celebrate that, but it did have its critics. William Coker, the leader of the Fisherman's Protective Union, stated that the government was trying to evade its responsibility by not managing the war effort. There was also a worry among some about how a group of citizens would manage the government's money, or if some in the NPA would use it for personal gain. The group's first 55 members were selected from the three major denominations on the island, as well as the People's Party and the Liberals. The next day, August 18th, 200 more people joined the organization, and branches were formed in all 45 rural communities. Newfoundland would raise an initial regiment of 500 men, the first of thousands to serve overseas from the island. The call for troops in Newfoundland ran throughout September, and when the recruitment ended on September 26, 1914, 970 men had come forward. Of those, 565 were accepted and 200 were rejected. The remainder were put into further consideration if more troops were needed. Those first troops from Newfoundland would leave on a steamship the Florizel on August 4, 1914, heading to England and eventually France. Among many in Canada, there was a wonder how much the war was going to cost. At the time, according to most estimates, it was believed that it would cost the country $75 million or $1.7 billion today. In reality, the government would be paying $2.5 million per day by 1918, and the national debt would rise by $2 billion. In modern funds, that is roughly $46 billion today. As the war had dominated the headlines of the country, residual effect was seen at the food shops where the price of goods began to increase. Even the cost of lumber and rubber shot up within only five days of war being declared. On August 10th, the Ottawa Citizen reported there had been a rush on flour, causing it to jump in price to $0.70 per barrel, or $16.21 today. This represented a 40% increase in just a few days. Oddly, at least initially, the price of sugar was falling, as were the price of some vegetables, including prunes. Within a week, sugar would see its price increase, though, and the Red Path Sugar Company would tell its sellers that the war does not warrant an increase. The company would set the sale of its sugar to 5.5 cents per pound retail. It didn't help. Within a few days, the price was 7 cents per pound, increasing by 1 cent in one day alone. Three days later, the government announced that it was proposing to take power for whatever drastic action was needed for the protection of consumers in regards to the skyrocketing price of food. Overall, the war had many on edge, even though Canada was far from the front lines. In Ottawa, boys flying a large kite sparked a minor panic for several residents, thinking that it was a German plane. In another incident a few days later on August 13th, there were reports of an airship lurking around the city as well as a rogue German plane. H. Harrington, a cashier in the city, would tell the Ottawa citizen, quote, Just as day was breaking, I heard a buzzing sound in the air and looked out the window at my house. I could perceive an aeroplane quite distinctly at a height which I judged to be 1,500 feet. It was a biplane so far as I could distinguish, and flew from the direction of the Parliament buildings towards the south." A rumour spread that the guards on the railway were giving orders to shoot down the plane if it came within shooting distance. By the end of the month, regiments were being organised all over the place, including the First Canadian Automobile Machine Gun Battery, which was encamped at Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, and it consisted of 50 men who were described as expert chauffeurs, and those 50 were chosen from 200 who had offered their services. They would start their squad drill the morning of August 27th, being trained in the use of machine guns. The first Canadian cruiser, the Niobe, would be fully manned, equipped, and ready for service by September 1st, and the Ottawa citizen would state, quote, She will be placed absolutely at the disposal of the Admiralty. To what particular patrol she will be assigned is not known, but it will probably be in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. One feature I plan to have in each episode of Canada's Great War is ending the episode by focusing on a soldier who fought in the war. It doesn't have to be a person who died or a Victoria Cross winner, a soldier took up the call and served their country. Born George Eric Reed on December 1, 1893, in London, Ontario, and at some point picking up the name Buster, he would begin playing football for McGill University as a student, and was one of the first to enlist from the university and soon found himself overseas. Reed joined nearly every other member of the McGill football team to enlist for overseas service. According to news reports, Reid was playing football when he decided to enlist, joining the 21st Westmount Rifles. He would enlist on October 27, 1914 in Montreal, giving his occupation as student and taking on the rank of private. After a brief period of training in England, he joined the 3rd Battalion on the front lines. In 1915, he was able to complete his degree in arts in absentia and over the next year and a half, Reed would be wounded twice and was mentioned in dispatches for his bravery. An injured hand would return him to Canada briefly in 1916, and while he would lose three fingers on his left hand, he was back in France after the summer of that year. In September of 1916, Reed had reached the rank of lieutenant, and was chosen to man the first tank to be used in the Somme offensive. One year later, Reed would be wounded once more and mentioned in dispatches again. By this point he had attained the rank of Major and he had also served at Vimy Ridge and would receive the Legion of Honour. By the end of the war Reed had reached the rank of Brigadier General and he would become the president of Reed Brothers and Company Limited where he would work for the rest of his life. In 1937 he was the guest of honour at a banquet of the McGill Graduates Athletic Club which honoured the past championship teams of the University. On January 14, 1938, Reed became ill while working in his office and was taken to the hospital the following day. Diagnosed with streptococcus, he would die in his sleep on January 17, 1938. I hope you enjoyed that first episode of Canada's Great War. I'm going to be going into a lot of detail about a lot of things. Battles, people, politicians, and much more. So I really hope you enjoy it. If you did, again, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell Reg W Deborah Carlson Francis Helbling Randall McCallum Diane Wade Lori Ann Kirby Gary Dolovich Nick Zinri Shannon Marshall Clinton Martinez Dimitri Shove Aaron O'Hara Myers Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rowah, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com canadianhistoryx. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Edmonton Journal, Canadian Encyclopedia, Veterans Affairs, Ottawa Citizen, Nanaimo Free Press, Saskatoon Daily Star, The Vancouver Sun, Heritage Newfoundland, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, The Hill Times, and The Windsor Star. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.